ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Jose Andres, the chef who serves those who seek the best and those who need the most. Walking into Chef Jose Andres' offices in downtown Washington, D.C., it's like getting a pass into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. At one end, a gaggle of chefs from his Michelin-starred restaurant are gliding around a test kitchen. They're trying out new recipes and deliberating over ingredients. In the middle of the room, skylights illuminate a sampling of ceramic serving dishes bound for Mercado Little Spain, a massive multi-restaurant affair opening this spring in Manhattan's Hudson Yards. The market joins a phalanx of others. Right now, Andres has some 30 restaurants from D.C. to Miami, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, from the height of haute gastronomy to fine casual. But we're not here to talk about fine dining. I am a great cook, and everybody wants to talk to me about other things. Those other things have become no less important to him than his work as a chef. In 2010, Andres helped found World Central Kitchen, with the aim of providing meals to Haitians after the devastating earthquake there. Since then, World Central Kitchen has made thousands of meals after disasters, from Cambodia to Uganda to Indonesia and Washington, D.C. itself. Now he's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. The nomination is tied to his work in Puerto Rico, where his NGO oversaw the distribution of millions of meals to Hurricane Maria storm survivors. But since then, Andres has pressed on. In January, he served thousands of meals to furloughed U.S. federal workers during the shutdown, and he set up kitchens in Tijuana in the impromptu refugee camps at the border. We talked about how it all unfolded and how food anchors it all. When you first heard that Maria had hit, what pushed you to go, and, and what did you see there? I think uh, we something happened that year because I used, came from Houston. The earthquake just hit Mexico. We didn't go Mexico, I didn't go Mexico, but we were able to send some money to some friends and help the different people that were very active in Mexico. So we were still recuperating from Houston because, again, I do this out of free time. I take away from my business. But then Maria hit, and I didn't hesitate, and I thought this seems very, very bad. My wife knew I was going to go. I couldn't go Saturday because airports were closed and planes were not available very much the same Sunday. But then Monday, lucky me, I got into a plane and there I landed. 
When you first got there, what was it like? Was there electricity? What were your first things you saw? Well, the first thing was the chaos in the airport. There was a lot of um, people that were trying to leave the airport, and they couldn't. So it was an airport full of people that they were hungry. They were uh, not so much thirsty, but hungry, because nobody was able to go there uh, to feed them. I remember contacting some friends, uh, Ricardo, who owns El Churri, a food truck, and he began feeding people in the airport again. That was the first thing that you saw, chaos. The streets were empty. Uh, gas was an issue, money was an issue, food was an issue. And you could sense that was not a normal working city. Water damage everywhere, in every building, in every uh, trees down, electric poles down, lights off, traffic lights off. Um, it looked like a movie set where somebody was trying to create the biggest drama possible. It looked exactly like that. Did it become immediately clear that food insecurity was one of the major issues? Well, the situation was obviously clear. I, I tweeted that I was going to Puerto Rico. I tweeted that I landed. Even sometimes the tweets will not be able to go out because cell signal was totally gone, and you will only do it if you were near some of the few towers that were working. And somehow I received a message from a friend from Paris and told me uh, my uncle runs this hospital and they've been working there for the last three, four days, 24-7 and they have no food for the nurses and the doctors. So that very much became our first mission. The people surrounding our first restaurant, Jose Enrique, where, is where we created our first kind of kitchen and camp mm-hmm. headquarters. Uh, people with money and obviously without money. Everybody was in need of a hot plate. Many people had kitchens that ran on electricity. Electric kitchens in these situations, they are, they are a disaster. The refrigerators of many of the restaurants uh, were non-functional and all the food used. The food was already spoiling. Correct. Only the freezers that nobody opened mm-hmm. were the ones that still you could be using mm-hmm. three, four days later. So fresh food was already very much gone but I knew it was food in the island because it's private sector but food actually was not an issue what was an issue was creating the teams to prepare the food and have a true system of distribution mm-hmm. we forget that if we don't have if we have assets but we don't have a good distribution system the assets are meaningless what actually we did was that we had a very good distribution system how are you getting around? I mean, how did you create that distribution system? Well, one kitchen at a time. First day, we were 20 friends. We made like 1,000 meals with whatever we had around for the local people, plus the hospital we, we fed. Wait, what were the first meals? So the first meal was, uh, were sancocho, which was uh, dry sausage and yuca, and sweet potato, and, and squash, and uh, corn, which those things, they can be outside refrigeration and nothing happens. The dry sausage, kind of the same. But those were very much uh, the first meals. And then I was able to buy frozen sancocho vegetables that they already come ready to put in the pot. And after two, three hours, you have an amazing hearty stew. Uh, from there, we began expanding to have four, five, six different dishes. 
so we could have a good rotation as we saw that we were going to be feeding people not only for a few days but for weeks or months. I want to go back to the distribution question. So how were you getting around? How were you bringing these things? Okay, so uh, my main thing, once I realized that food was available in the island, I knew where it was. I began communicating with those people, the, the private sector. Uh, this is a company called Jose Santiago, but then we had Caribbean Produce, which is the biggest uh, produce company in the island. And between them two alone, even there was other companies, I knew that if I told them what our needs were going to be, very much they will make sure to cover those needs. So the distribution was simple. We began in one kitchen, we opened a second one uh, restaurant called from Chef Piñero. Then we opened uh, the Coliseo, the bigger kitchen in the convention center. Uh, we went Ponce in the south. We saw the need there. We spoke to the mayor, Mayita. We opened a kitchen there after my first trip to the south of the island. In the moment, I had already three kitchens in the north plus the one kitchen in the south. We had four kitchens, I would say, within eight days. Uh, I knew that I couldn't be having people driving all day to San Juan and going back two, three hours back and forth. So it's when I saw very clearly that I had to open other kitchens across the island, including Vieques and Culebra. So I began with how do we do that? And I began getting cooks that f came from the States, from homeland, and we create teams, Delta Force teams. Once we knew the kitchens, we started making sure the kitchens had everything they needed, generators, diesel, gas, food, water, volunteers, cooks, and we began opening kitchens. Before we knew, we had 18th kitchens working at the same time. Serving how many meals a day? At the top of our operation, we reached 150,000 meals one day. In the meantime, the U.S. government is distributing MREs. And you have a particular ire around MREs, especially when you talk about them. Explain why. So the MREs uh, are meals ready to eat. I think our great men and women of the military, they become very creative. And if you go and Google it, you will see that MRE stands for a lot of other things, and none of them are nice. Mm -hmm. But they were a good solution for troops on the battlefield to have uh, meals that could sustain uh, long periods. The reality is that people forget that even when people are poor, people don't want our pity, they want our respect, and sometimes they want a hot plate of food. I'm not talking about super situations where hunger is used, a total chaos, and people will eat anything. Mm -hmm. But if it's not at that very low, low point of humanity, people are very attached to eat something that resembles something normal. So Emory's are not something like people really like. And I've seen it in many places around the world. But the other issue is that the military arrived, they bring the MREs, it's a good thing initially, but very quickly you lose the sense of how many meals are you delivering for how many people. It's almost like you drop, and because you're dropping, you think you're taking care of the problem, but you're not. MREs occupy a lot of space. In one of my trays is 40 meals. And four MREs occupy the same space as 40 meals. So if you really have a massive problem, and one day we have to feed, like in the case of Puerto Rico, hundreds of thousands of people, you don't have enough cargo capacity between Humvees and helicopters or even planes to move and deliver daily such a massive amount of volume mm -hmm. plus weight. Mm -hmm. That's why in the long run when something is very massive, 
Emery's I don't believe is the solution forward. It's very simple. If part of your strategy in emergencies is use any kitchen that may be activated in strategic areas, depends where the hurricane or the earthquake or the volcano uh, happen, those are assets that you activate and then you start feeding people right there, producing the food right there and reaching the close communities that they are in need of water and a plate of hot food. That's what we do. What were some of the responses from people when they were getting a real plate of hot food, a real roast chicken, or a real paella, whatever it was that you were serving? What, what kind of responses did you get? People are very thankful. We try always to do the hot meal. We try to do the fresh fruit. And we always try to do the sandwich. And we try to deliver everything like a package. And almost you deliver two meals at the same time you are delivering the food. And the sandwich is also a good way for us to bring the community in because they love to participate, they love to be part of the response once the initial chaos goes away. And sandwiches for us is a way that we can be using hundreds of amazing volunteers that they don't only help us produce very important food, but also they become intelligence uh, officers because we know where the real need is. We something happens, we need gas. Chances are somebody in the community knows the guy in charge of the gas. We need water. Somebody in the community knows who can be getting us water because we are short on water. We use local resources better than most because the community is part of our response, and so the community is what makes us successful. One of the things that's striking about the work you did in Puerto Rico is how adversarial your relationship ends up being with FEMA, which is supposed to go in and do this work. Can you explain a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, I, I don't think my, my issues with FEMA were so bad as, as sometimes they look or even the press reported, even on my own words when I complain about it. It's true that one day I said that FEMA seems was leaving Puerto Rico hungry, and, and quite frankly, I still stand by that tweet. But the men and women of FEMA, they were all amazing. They, many of them were working 24-7, and many of them were use following the book. Uh, some of them, red tape will not allow them to do certain things. I would say some of them, probably they are not prepared for their jobs. But the truth is that I do believe FEMA should be considering renewing itself. I think that the same people sometimes work on the first day's emergency are the same people that many months or years later are still working on reconstruction. Emergency is emergency. And management of the reconstruction is management of the reconstruction. I think we need to create a FEMA that is operational specifically for emergencies. And then we should take the emergency word out and create a federal management administration to start reconstruction, manage contracts. But we cannot use operate both as one because I don't believe they were able to adapt to a situation that was complicated but was not impossible. I was showing them what we were doing. The only thing they had to be doing is use fully support what we were doing and do more of what we were doing, no less of what we were doing. Was the problem that the organizations, FEMA and also the Red Cross, Salvation Army, was it that they weren't nimble enough to recognize an alternative mechanism? I would say that's uh, the case. Uh, Red Cross presence in Puerto Rico was very small. Uh, Salvation Army in Puerto Rico was very small. But the problem is when they are our two bigger NGOs, mm -hmm. that on paper they are in charge. All of the sudden we had a leadership vacuum. 
And I understand Maria was beyond what we expected. And I understand we had many hurricanes before, and everybody was kind of very busy. But the vacuum of leadership was real in Puerto Rico. Central Kitchen was able to see that vacuum of leadership, and we went in. But we went in because nobody else seems to be taking it seriously enough. Were you on the island when Trump arrived? Yeah, lately when President Trump shows up, uh, I seem to be always there. Uh, North Carolina, we crossed paths. I was just probably 500 meters away from where he was. The same in Florida, same obviously in California. It seems we keep crossing paths to a degree. I even I think when he went to the border in that moment, I was in Tijuana, so I think it's part of my life. Uh, but the visit of the president in a thing like this, I think is always very important. I will say that closer you have the president to the people suffering is a better way that a president can really assess the real needs of the people. In Puerto Rico, it was a little bit challenging probably for a lot of reasons, and obviously uh, the, the famous moment where he was sending the napkins to the people. Maybe you saw him feeding people like he did in a better way in North Carolina was probably better. But again, I criticize President Trump in the sense the way when food is not good in my restaurants, I am the one I criticize. I don't blame my teams. I don't blame my chefs. I take the responsibility on my own shoulders. So I I think in, in situations when, in this case, the top leader of America falls short delivering aid. I don't think it's nothing wrong taking ownership of the failures. doesn't make you less of a leader. I think the contrary makes you recognize that maybe we need to do better and more uh, and expedite aid in the case of Maria or in future events. What do you think the commonality is between man-made humanitarian disasters and natural humanitarian disasters? Well, Maria probably will be a one-on-one of Mm man-made because many of the people that die didn't die during the hurricane. They die after. The issue is that probably we will not even know how many people died during the hurricane because the chaos was such that it doesn't seem anybody knew uh, who was being rescued, dead or alive, who was being taken to different hospitals to keep a simple, humble count of daily death. I don't think it should be so complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Indonesia, we had a daily count of dead bodies that they were being found after the tsunami. If Indonesia can be doing a daily count, imagine the United States of America. So for me, this is um, lessons learned, or that not recognizing the real number of people that die because during the hurricane or on the aftermath of the hurricane, this was a failure. Why? Because if we will know early on that 3,000 people maybe die, maybe more, then you put much more pressure on the White House, much more pressure on Congress of saying, we need to do better. In my book, We Fed an Island, we do a very simple comparison with the response to Haiti for Prince Earthquake and with the response to Maria. And you will see that the response to Haiti was quicker, faster, and in much greater numbers than the response we did to Maria. 
that's a fact. And I only wonder why we cannot be having, obviously, the same response to a American territory like Puerto Rico with 3.7 million Americans. Do you have thoughts on why? I mean, why didn't we? Uh, There's a lot of theories out there. I guess that Puerto Rico doesn't have any voting rights in Congress. Maybe that's one. That maybe um, lately has been this rhetoric or this talk or this against Latinos, Hispanics, or immigrants. Not like Puerto Ricans are immigrants, but they are a Latino family in the States. Maybe it's because there was many hurricanes before, and the system broke down. But this is the United States of America. We have the biggest army in the history. We have a National Guard. We have some of the best NGOs. We have some of the best private sector. We are supposed to be ready. You mentioned already that you've set up kitchens in Tijuana, and obviously, most recently during the government shutdown, you were feeding federal workers. How do these events compare? Well, the federal workers shut down. We announced that we felt was a food crisis in America because I saw there was many women, uh, single mothers with two, three children that they were not being uh, given the, the food stamps, eight they requested. And that's the moment I, I thought the problem was becoming bigger than anybody recognized. So to see the lines in Washington, D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue, that was very surprising to me. Uh, the sad part was that feeding in Tijuana, we are in every shelter. So we have a very good intelligence of what's going on. And I can guarantee you, and if Secretary Nielsen is listening to this, this is not a national security issue. Is a humanitarian issue. Uh, Can you describe the scene in Tijuana? Well, you know, there are some uh, shelters that happen randomly. There's one called El Alacran, that, which is probably 25 minutes outside Tijuana, like 30 minutes away from the border, that uh, was a whole bunch of Haitians that have been there for a while. Haitians that they've been going all across Central America, passing by Venezuela and somehow many months later they arrived to Tijuana and they are there and they are the ones that somehow welcome all these new uh, people arriving from places like Honduras, Guatemala. So they are fairly disorganized but uh, I only see people that they are hoping for a better tomorrow. We can be building all the walls we want. If people in northern, in Africa are hungry they are going to come to Europe. If people in Central America are hungry, they're going to come to America. If a mother and a father wants to feed their children, it's no wall or army is going to stop those people. And what are we going to do? Shoot them? I don't think that's an American value that we, the people, will support. So the best is more investment in USAID, more farms. Not only farms that will help those people do better, but farms that one day may be a national security issue for the states because something will happen to our crops. And we know we can rely on these other friendly countries that they are producing food that one day we will need to feed America. So in every way or form, the best investment is not used to surround ourselves by walls where uh, we are going to have this kind of feeling of protection. The best protection we can offer our children is when the other people are doing as well as our own people. 
So the best interest of America will be investing in longer tables, shorter walls, in making sure that farming industry, that these other countries surrounding America are doing as good as America. That's the best foreign policy for America today. You're still working on infrastructure in Puerto Rico. Tell me what's the legacy now. Well, in, over the last few months, we've been able to coordinate uh, effort to give grants to 40 farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already announced with uh, CGI and partners, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton initiative, we're going to be putting $4 million more dollars, impacting close to 200 more farms. So by the year 2021, we hope to be active in 240 farms with the hope, not only with our work, but the work of other partners, that Puerto Rico will at least be able to produce between 20 and 30% of the foods they consume. Right now, they only produce 10% of all the food they consume. Everything else is imported. And I do believe will be in the best interest of Puerto Rico to invest more in farming, creating local jobs, creating local food resilience, but then that should be applied to every other part of America and then should be what America should be leading in Mexico, should be leading in Guatemala, should be leading in Honduras. If we do that, that's not throwing money at the problem. To me, that's investing in the world. One farm at a time, not one wall at a time. When you came back from Puerto Rico, you gave the um, prayer for our country at Addis Israel. And there was not a dry eye in the room because it was a really, really powerful moment to hear you give that prayer. I'm curious what it felt like to give it. Well, I was very humble by it. I'm kind of a man of faith that never goes to the temples. <laughs> I go once in a while, especially if I am on, on a mission, is when you will see me. Uh, at the end, I guess, all those gods or those beliefs, they are almost brothers, one with each other, and because they all believe in the same, that we are all together in a table, breaking bread, sharing what we don't have, or sharing the little we have, uh, is when you see the happy, happy people, happy children, happy communities. And I've seen people with nothing, uh, with the biggest smiles in their lives. And sometimes it's a humble plate, is what gives people hope that tomorrow maybe things will be better. Uh, Jonas Stenbeck said it best. Whatever there is a fight so hungry people may eat, I will be there. I think Paulson Dragician took this phrase and we made it our own. And now we say we will be there. And for us, we do it because the community joined us. And when the community comes together, nothing is impossible. And I think in Puerto Rico alone was 25,000 strong Puerto Ricans that came together as one. In Indonesia, we have thousands of volunteers. In Guatemala, we got thousands of volunteers. Now we realize that when you have a simple mission, feed the hungry, everybody understands and everybody joins. And then the bigger problems, they become uh, kind of very simple solutions. You show up and they start cooking. Tell us about the maps. We can stand up if you want. Ah. Yeah. This, for example, is... Uh, this is... Uh, North Carolina, that's the mission. If you take a look, it's really impressive. For a little NGO to do this, from our headquarters to our National Guard feeding neighborhoods, first responders. Every sticky tape is a kitchen? places, yeah. No, the kitchens are the yellow ones. The first responders are the neighborhoods that we go daily until we believe that they are established and the National Guard 
units that sometimes they are deployed and they don't have anybody to take care of their food. So we try to cover their food needs because those are men and women that <laughs> they don't make a lot of money and they work 24-7 and they are deployed in areas that they are very much dark of restaurants, even if they had money. It's not like you can go and order Domino's because Domino's probably will be closed after the um, hurricane. Uh, but again, uh, I think you was a Briat Savaran, which actually had the book there. This philosopher in 1826, French guy who said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. Um, that was a powerful phrase many has used, even nobody knows who said it. So this Briat Savaran said even one phrase, even more important. He said, the future of the nations will depend on how they feed themselves. Um, if I was... Uh, congressman or senator, I will get that phrase and I will put it very high up in our capital. Because I do believe food touches everything in ways we don't even realize. And I do believe we need to be thinking more seriously about food. Right now, I think we take it for granted. Food is the DNA who we are and because that alone, we should be taking it more seriously. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Chef Jose Andres. A few days after we spoke, Donald Trump's FEMA director, Brock Long, resigned after a turbulent two-year tenure. Long was widely criticized for FEMA's failures in Puerto Rico. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com